0: Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Mares.
1: Hi, I'm Phoebe. And my name is Sandra. And you're listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism.
2: And you you cannot neglect that there is this dark side of not the moon, but of the society. And uh, this means that we should um, participate in, in these kind of debates.
0: The person you just heard is Armin Scholl, who is a professor at the University of Münster in Germany. And you will hear more from him in a second.
1: A few months ago, he gave a talk at the University of Vienna on constructivism in communication sciences. And we'll hear
0: more on that a little bit later. Um, In the meantime, we spoke to him about changes in the journalistic field and counterpublics and how these can both support democratic public debates but also be destructive in the form of hate speech.
2: My name is Armin Scholl. I'm professor at the University of Münster. I started my studies at the University of Mainz, which was pretty close to my birthplace, and uh, I, I wanted to become a journalist. Uh, this was, in at this age, uh, the normal case that I think eighty percent of all the students wanted to become journalists later on. But um, when when I listened to the lectures and, uh, and and the seminars, I was so much interested in uh, the scientific stuff itself that. Uh, um, it became more and more clear that uh, it is wonderful to do this professionally later on, and uh, then I changed to from from Mainz to Münster, did my dissertation then finally, and um, became member of uh, staff dealing with uh, journalism studies, and um, together with with uh, Siegfried Weichenberg, we conducted uh, the first study of journalism. In Germany, which is a representative or was a representative um, survey among German journalists, and later on, uh, twelve years later, in uh, two thousand five, we had the second wave of this study with a completely new sample, and this was my um, my main research area. in this time, um, however, this was not the only research line because um, I was also interested in those people um, who did not really believe in the quality of professional journalism and um, this is uh, when um, alternative media and counterpublics c- come into um, into play because um, I was also always interested uh, what are these people, activists, groups, organizations do um, when they do not want to rely that professional journalists describe what they do because they always feel that um, the coverage f- uh, done by uh, professional journalists um, is very much biased. For example, if you participate in a demonstration and later on uh, you listen to uh, radio contribution or an article in uh, um, in newspaper, you sometimes have the impression uh, the journalist was at a... Uh, um, participate in a completely different event and that's why um, activists uh, feel the need to express themselves in their own media and then uh, alternative media come into play and always was interested to um, see both sides professional journalism on the one side and on the other side uh, alternative media.
1: Counterpublics have often been considered a positive in society as promoting alternative views that make democratic discourse richer. But, as of late, with technological
0: advancements, counterpublics that propagate hate speech have become more and more prominent.
1: So where do we draw the line? Can such counterpublics ever be seen to add value, even when we don't agree with them?
2: If you are grown up in the generation of the post-68 student revolution revolt or so, counterpublic uh, was considered a necessary not substitution but complementary to uh, professional journalism, for example. Um, nowadays, we are a little bit even terrified that counterpublic also implies um, a hardcore um, propaganda, for example. and, and um, So we Get the feeling that counterpublics is very ambivalent in in its character. So you have both that uh, what you told that um, counterpublics is um, means enlargening or, or broadening the established discourse, which is good for democracy because um, you have the chance to uh, to do to to include more of. Um, of the public or um, a greater public, a greater audience. Uh, but on the other side, um, the style of uh, counter-public communication has become uh, problematic because it is not uh, only as in a democratic way discursive, but it's also uh, characterized by hate speech and uh, and a non-discursive, discursive, um, propaganda-oriented uh, style. and. Um, we have to to learn that counterpublic in itself is neither good or bad independently um, what is your standpoint uh, whether you are let's say liberal or left or uh, wherever you come from um, you have to look carefully what kind of counterpublic it is and um, if it is a kind of counterpublic which seems to destroy the established professional journalism, for example, and not only to complement it, um, then I think uh, we have to take care and to um, uh, to do research on, on this phenomenon in order to um, explain why this happens at all. Because um, you may also ask yourself, um, why does this kind of negative, um, counter occur at, at all. And uh, to find the reasons for this, is what are the causes for this, I think is uh, really important. And one of the reasons may be that this part of the audience, which um, communicates with hate, hatred and in propagandistic style, um, that they are not represented by the established journalism this was all the true for the uh, counter public or the alternative media in, uh, in the 70s however they were much more interested in discussion and in debates and uh, in, uh, in a kind of rational communication but nowadays you have both rational communication and um, really propagandistic and uh, overwhelming kind of communication and um, to recognize this ambivalence uh, I think is uh, the most relevant thing we have to learn nowadays.
0: said earlier Armin was in Vienna to talk about constructivism in current communication science research.
1: And of course we wanted to know how this framework might be applicable to journalism studies.
2: It's not very easy to answer to this question because um, not every colleague would join my my opinion in, 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 this, uh, in this case. Um, constructivism makes you sensitive that it is naive to believe that uh, the media and media coverage is a mirror of what is called reality. So um, constructivism is not a kind of radical skepticism. Um, constructivists don't say that everything is invented or it's just fantasy or whatever. This is not my kind of um, doing constructivism. On the other hand, it is uh, constructivists say please don't be so optimistic or so naive to think that it is easy for journalists, for example, to, um, uh, to mirror or to, to cover reality as it is. So I think that um, constructivism makes you thinking about um, your role as an observer of reality, makes you more reflective, which is in, in, in itself um, a good thing because reflecting things is, is not the strength of journalists to be to be honest uh, journalists um, are doing their thing and they don't have much time and uh, so um, they do not reflect on what they are doing for example if uh, if you cover a war or so um, I have always the impression that journalists um, are in a hurry they uh, um, they have, information sources, most of them are propagandistic and they don't reflect on this and they think this this is the truth or this is the mirror of reality. And to be a bit more reflective um, should help um, or should uh, at least make journalists more sensitive with respect to the problem of uh, describing reality. And it makes you sensitive that different descriptions of reality are possible. So, um, for example, if we differ in our descriptions of reality, it doesn't mean that one of us is right and the other is wrong. Maybe we are both wrong or maybe we are both in a certain way right, for example. And constructivism is a, a philosophy which teaches you that the contingency of um, reality description is not a failure um, but it is a strength and it is a player for pluralism in describing um, reality. That is uh, roughly said um, what I think is the main idea of constructivism. Mm
1: At the time of the interview there was a debate amongst the German public on Twitter and uh, let me explain. There was a talk show that was accused of framing refugees as a, as a threat and the social media account of the talk show replied that this concept of framing was meaningless to them. And this kicked off a discussion where other journalists felt this response not only lacked reflection. But also that most journalists nowadays accept that they don't mirror reality, but that they're rather created. And the icing on the cake was when audiences pitched
0: in on the debate and said that they had known all along that journalists are consciously making up reality. So this brings us to the question, what effect does it have on audiences to know that journalists cannot mirror reality? And could media literacy fix this?
2: As in, in the first place, you are, um, your description shows that um, journalists, most of the journalists, are not reflected at all. It is very naive to think um, that uh, obeying some professional rules implies that uh, reality comes to me and I just have to mirror it, for example. Sometimes I think journalists um, have this kind of attitude towards the professional role just to protect them from... Uh, such accusations or blame, blames that they do not really mirror. They, they just say uh, w- we have some professional norms and um, following them guarantees that what comes out, our co- media coverage, is a mirror of reality. Uh, this is the one side. And the other side is um, an audience which is much more self-confident than it was before. Uh, with before I mean before the time of the internet and especially before the time of um, what we can can call participative uh, media such as social media, uh, um, Web two point zero for example, and uh, I think that um, this is a phenomenon which you have in uh, within the whole society. For example the medicines um, um, where gods in in, in white clothes uh, were considered as such and nowadays people come uh, to a doctor and and previously had gained some information from the internet and say maybe this is my disease or something like that so um, they are a bit more on on eye level on the same eye level and uh, I think journalists have to learn from this and on the other side I would Expect and I, w- I would hope that this media literacy um, even uh, increases. Of course, sometimes this is hard to. Um to accept for, for professionals because professionals are professionals because they had learned their stuff, they uh, had trained it, they have uh, skills uh, which we don't uh, have if we are no professionals. And if uh, the audience comes and says we know it as good as you know, this, is, this means that uh, I lose my expertise or at least my expertise is not as, um, as relevant as I thought before but i think it is a kind of uh, democratic process to accept that despite my expertise i have trained and i've learned for, for s- such a long time that i have to accept that uh, the audience is not a unskilled mass without uh, knowledge or so um, that i have to accept that uh, parts of the audience at least are very intelligent people and uh, that I, as a professional, can even learn from them. And it is the same at university. I mean, of course, as a professor, I, I'm more experienced than you are, for example. But uh, I'm not more intelligent than you. Than you and um, I have to learn that uh, in a seminar, for example, it is an open discussion. And even if you have the impression you can learn from me, um, it is also true the other way around. Uh, that I can learn from the discussion or debates uh, provided by uh, the, the students as well. This is true for, for, for many um, um, aspects in, within society. It is in, in, um, in healthcare, care, it is in, um, in justice, in, in policy, in politics, for example, because um, the voters are not... Um, devoted to, to politicians but they are um, they are able to say uh, politician you are not right and uh, I do not vote for you for for a certain reason for example
1: so all of this doesn't sound too bad after all but we had to pitch in as devil's advocate and wonder about the flip side um, which is how can we as a society limit the propagandistic sphere that Amin talked about earlier
2: in my, in my last answer, uh, you are right, I, um, I I just emphasized the optimistic part of the answer. But um, if, if you read um, modern theorists about society, you will always make, have the impression that um, one of the most um, relevant characteristics of modern society is its ambivalence. So the dark side of the society is what, what you described Um is that in the first place, those people who are not propagandistic or who are interested in developing democracy, um, they have to notice that there is another side uh, which is propagandistic, which is uh, full of hatred, which is um, um, illiberal, etc. And um, that there is a deep conflict about the goals, how society will devo- develop and how um, we want to live together. Um, and you you cannot neglect that there is this dark side of not the moon but of the society and uh, this means that we, with me, I mean um, social scientific research, we uh, should um, participate in, in these kind of debates, we should um, make every effort to strengthen those forces within society um, which are progressive, which are more liberal and uh, which can um, at least um, uh, fight again is a little bit uh, metaphorical but um, yeah, fight against these kind of phenomenon. So um, neglecting is the wrong strategy I think Um, And with fighting, I just mean um, opening the debates, um, engaging, involving into these debates, not resigning. Um, Always um, um, keep your voice up and uh, do not silence or do not participate in a spiral of silence or something like that. Um, This is what um, uh, we as social scientists uh, have to do and as well um, parts of society have also to to be engaged in.
1: Neglecting the so-called dark side is not an option, but rather all citizens should feel that they can express their opinions.
0: And we find some similar push and pull when it comes to which audience expectations are worth considering and which ones are worth ignoring. In other words, how much should journalists rely on audience expectations when selecting news? Um,
2: Again, I have to give you an answer which shows the ambivalence. Uh, On the one hand, we surely would accept or uh, or favor of um, journalists who are not considered themselves um, kind of elite and uh, kind of... um, uh, being better than their audience, etc. We would be in favor of a journalism who is sensitive towards um, the public's needs, etc. But on the other hand, um, journalism is still a professional thing and um, they cannot depend uh, 100% from the public. Sometimes they have to cover an issue, for example... um, even against the wishes of the public, for example, or the audience. And uh, journalists have to, I think, to um, to reflect on when they have to react onto the, the public's or the audience's needs and when they do, do not have to. This is a very complicated question for journalists because uh, in, in every case they have to make their decision, um, what, I, what have I to do now in this case, but I think um, if you are skilled and uh, professionally trained, um, you have an, an impression when you have to um, to be sensitive to the public or the audience, and when you have to even ignore the um, the audience's needs because the audience's needs. Uh, in this case, are um, too simple or too too one-sided, whatever you you mean. So, um, again, um, yes, it is good to be open to the public and not to ignore it, not to be um, um, arrogant. On the other hand, um, you don't have to to run after every single uh, need, expressed by the audience. If, if you have this kind of role perception, you are um, immediately in a kind of tabloid journalism, for example. Tabloid journalists uh, really uh, are running after their audience, although sometimes it seems that they um, create audiences' opinions. But uh, in the first place, I think they uh, have expectations, what greatest part of the audience wants, and they... Adopt what what the audience wants. I accept that this is uh, an important part of, of, um, um, of journalism, but it's only one important part. Um, the counterpart of this uh, of the role perception may be investigative journalism, for example. Investigative journalism, of course, also has an image from the audience, but it is completely different. It is um, the image that um, the audience wants wants to be informed about uh, things which are not right in our society, and um, and that um, they have to do their job. Investigative journalists have to do their job. Um, let's say without the permission of um, um, of of, of um, the audience, they do it um, in their own because they have a certain Um, role perception, um, that they are part of democracy and they have to fulfill a certain task for democracy. And um, indirectly, of course, this is good for the audience, but I do not think that investigative journalists immediately always have in their mind that uh, the public will applaud to this. So they they, um, have obviously the impression that they have a really important task within society and of course society is the sum of all of the audiences but they do not have in their um, in their mind a specific kind of, of audience I think there was a tension between these two fields of journalism on the one hand a very um, tabloid journalism which uh, which is very much oriented to the the simple needs of of an audience, and on the other hand, an investigative journalism which um, is not so much interested in everybody's needs, but in a uh, sees their own task as a kind of um, democratic role within society. These, I mean, uh, maybe the are the extreme. Um, Role perceptions or is, is the tension between, uh, or within journalism and every other kind of journalism, uh, such as interpretive uh, journalism or um, um, database journalism, etc., is uh, between these both um, extreme role perceptions.
0: aspect we come back to in this podcast um, are the boundaries of journalism, which brings up questions that are sometimes challenging to
1: answer. And one of them is a question of methodology. As the field of journalism expands to include more and more semi-professional contributors, researchers are met with the conundrum of how to study them in a representative way and as we don't know their overall population and they're not as easy to access as institutional journalists are how do we sample them?
2: This example shows us that um, sampling is not a technique in itself which you can apply in every historical situation. Um, In our two studies we had to change the sampling procedure because things had changed in the direction you mentioned. So we have, um, there is a tendency towards more freelance journalism. And within freelance journalism, you have a um, a large variety of those who are almost full-time versus those who are doing just a little bit of journalism, for example. And um, I fully agree that um, it becomes more and more difficult to cover exactly the more precarious roles of of freelancers. Um, I have no proper solution to this because um, however you try to to cover them, um, you make certain errors. For example, if you um, try to cover them via the organizations, media organizations, then Um, many of those who uh, just uh, do a little bit of journalism um, are not more considered. Uh, They are out of the sample, for example. Um, The only um, tendency towards a solution may be that um, uh, one cannot be so ambitious to cover them all, Um, unless this is the research question. For example, if you have the research question, where is the border between what we can consider um, a professional freelancer and a freelancer who is, uh, f- for example, like students or, or pupils or um, or retired people who just do it as a hobby or so? Um, if, if that is not your question, um, then I think it is okay. Um, to cover only, let's say, 80 or 90 percent because those uh, who are left, 10 or 20 percent left, um, are not, in in terms of quantity, so relevant for journalism. Although they contribute to journalism, but their part of contribution is rather small. But if you are uh, on the border of journalism versus non-journalism, I think um, it's better to do... Um, case studies rather than representative samples because um, you will never cover um, both sides, those who are within the field of journalism or the system of journalism and those who are at the border or even outside. Um, In the end I think there is not one um, perfect solution or one way which is better than the other but uh, this does not mean that anything goes but um, in the first place you have to draw a lot of uh, conclusions, uh, you have to make a lot of decisions and every decision you make has consequences for um, what comes out of your sampling procedure. And to reflect on this is the only thing we can do, I think. Uh, there will be no perfect way or not even a way which is, uh, at, at, sometimes you have a way which is satisf- satisfying. This is the best I think you can do. and. And what you, if, if you have enough resources, you can try to check out or to try um, different kinds of, of sampling procedures and then to compare the outcomes. Uh, comparisons is, is always an, an interesting uh, research um, strategy. But um, to do this, um, you have to uh, have some more resources. Uh, I don't think that um, a single person who is doing his or her um, dissertation project um, will have the time and the resources. Um, Maybe if you are involved in a greater research project um, and and have a cooperation with others, but um, as a single person, I I think you have to make decisions and then go this way and um, reflect on the consequences. And if you are doing this, I think um, this is what good or even best practices uh, characterized by.
1: Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this podcast. And so to end
0: our conversation, as always, we asked Armin what he thinks are some of the pressing questions for future journalism research.
2: Oh, there are so many. (laughs) Um, I think the relationship between professional and Mm non-professional journalism Um, I I say this uh, explicitly, that there is a kind of non-professional journalism because um, from a functional perspective, um, there are roles within the society uh, which are not professional. However, they do what journalists do. And this relationship between both um, is, I think, the most... um, um, for practical and f- reasons, and for for research reasons, um, the most challenge because um, it is a challenge for those who are professionals because they are not uh, the only gatekeepers. Meanwhile, they compete with non-professionals and uh, with um, with other concepts of of journalism, for example. Um, and this challenge, how they cope with this, and my. Um, Hypothesis is that um, professional journalists, journalism, will change. not Not only will have to change, but it will actually change to solve this problem, or at least to um, um, to try to solve this problem. And um, it it is open to the future what will happen to those who are not professional, but who are journalists in a way. Um, what I mean is, um, do they professionalize themselves? This would be my hypothesis or expectation. So a professionalism will enlarge its its own field or will they drop out of journalism? Which means that, um, for example, they are doing a blog or writing a blog and then disappear because uh, it takes too much time, uh, too much resources, etc. And um, I have the impression that we are in a transitional time and transitional times always are interesting because they are undecided and what will happen is is not very clear. But I think there will have to be a kind of decision or will have to be um, a way in which uh, journalism will move and uh, we will see what will happen um, if I am right that um, uh, professionalism will reinvent itself or whether there will be a a continuous challenge for professional journalism um, because of the competition with non-professional journalists, we will see.
1: That was it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you want to know more about Armin's work, you can go to the University of Münster webpage. And if you'd
0: like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Studies Center at the University of Vienna. And our website is journalismstudies.univ.ac.at.
1: There you can also find information on the rest of our team, Daniel Nöllicke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch. And also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch.
0: And as some of you uh, probably know, we have the ACREA Journalism Studies Section Conference uh, happening at the University of Vienna mid-February. And there we hope to meet and speak with uh, several scholars who are attending. So our next podcast uh, is going to be a surprise. And you'll hear back from us in March. The music you heard today is from Blue Dot Sessions. And also we would like to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. My name is Phoebe. And I'm Sandra. Bye. Bye.